I would find one platform that has really good built-in distribution and that algorithm is made for discovery and I would go in on that and I would basically ignore everything else. And I'd have a funnel back to email. Welcome to The Fort Podcast. I'm Chris Powers and on this show, I talk to some of the most fascinating minds in business and discuss important topics in the worlds of real estate, entrepreneurship, investing, and more. To learn more, visit thefortpod.com. That's thefortpod.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Relay Human Cloud, a leading provider of staff hosting and related services to simplify and de-risk the process of adding remote overseas workers. Stay tuned to the end of this episode and you'll be able to hear more about Relay Human Cloud, what they do, and how they've helped businesses like mine, Fort Capital. We're offering an exclusive promo code for the fans of this show, so make sure to stick around for that to receive $500 off per employee per year. I just pinch myself when I think about what Fort Capital's done over the last few years. We're based in Fort Worth, Texas, and we have a track record that has already transacted on over $2 billion in assets throughout Texas, Tennessee, and Florida. Our team is currently looking to acquire Class B industrial deals between $15 and $100 million throughout Texas, Florida, Tennessee, and now North Carolina and South Carolina. To learn more about Fort Capital, visit www.fortcapitallp.com. Nathan, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me today, man. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I've been a fan of all your content, so it's good to chat. Yeah, likewise. It's always fun to connect in person. I've been doing a lot of digging um, with kind of your journey to, to starting ConvertKit and really starting this mission that it looks like you're on uh, to help creators um, all over the world. Yeah, uh, my background, you know, at a high level is in software design. So I, I did web design in high school, like freelance, all of that, and then dove into uh, learning software design, got into the iOS world when the iPad came out, worked for a startup that was doing uh, iOS design. And my first projects that actually made money were iOS apps. Like I had one, I had a Habits app, I had a Flashcards app, I had uh, an app used by speech-language pathologists, actually, which was kind of interesting. Um, so dove into that world, did freelancing, uh, and then that took me into the world of blogging and content creation and, and, uh, you know, down the whole email path and, and we can get into any aspects of that that yeah. you want to talk about. Who taught you design? Are you self-taught or is that something that you had to learn? I don't want to say self-taught. You know, it's the way that we learn anything on the internet. Um, yeah. we, you know, you come across like on one hand, People are like, oh, you you know, you were self-taught. And I guess the way that I think about it is my teachers just never uh, knew me. <laughs> I knew them really well. Yeah. You know, in like the early days of the web standards movement or things like that, there's just so many great blogs of people being like, hey, I figured out how to do this with CSS. I figured out, how, you know, this other thing. And they would just write about it. And so I just consumed all of that content and then practiced a lot. Um, I did go to uh, uh, school for graphic design. Yeah. I lasted one semester in the art department. <laughs> yeah. And then I lasted three more semesters in like the business department for marketing. And then after two years, I was out. <laughs> so I couldn't couldn't do it. Okay. So you so you blog, uh, you design, and then you kind of got the impetus that you were going to put it all together and you started ConvertKit. What was the original idea for ConvertKit? And is that kind of the ConvertKit that we know today? Yeah. So I had gone on this path from 
uh, quitting my job. I spent three years at a startup doing software design and then um, uh, quit my job to go freelance and had some iOS apps that were making some money and then then freelance design. And in that process, uh, I was following people uh, through Tim Ferriss. I'd come across a guy named Chris Gillibo. He'd written a lot about self-publishing and content creation, and I loved his stuff. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to self-publish a book on designing iOS apps. And there wasn't a lot of content about it. This is in 2012, so iOS had been out for a few years, um, but was still you know, still in the early days. Uh, and I just figured, you know, I don't have an audience or anything, but if I write the book on how to design iOS apps, then you're going to want to hire me to design your app. You know, it's, it's going to be uh, good for getting a lot more business. I can charge more. And my goal was to make $10,000 off of uh, the book in its whole lifetime. You know, I'm not giving it away for free. I want to sell it and I want it to be a business. Um, but I ended up launching it in September, 2012, uh, to an email list of 800 people uh, that I built on MailChimp. Uh, and I sold $12,000 worth of the book in the first day. <laughs> and so I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> By the end of the first week, it sold $19,000 and I was off to the races. And so I actually never took on another design client. Um, that whole path like <laughs> didn't materialize. There were plenty of options. I was just like, no, I'm all in on you know selling the digital products and building an audience. I ended up writing another book. Uh, we can get into why if it's interesting, but I wrote a book on designing web applications. Um, that one made $50,000 in the first month. And I would go around, there's a friend. So I live in Boise and there's not like a huge startup scene in Boise, but there's a lot of like really talented online marketers who have been at it since the early days. So if you know companies like bodybuilding.com and ClickBank, um, and even more recently, like ClickFunnels and plenty of others that are like, they're all founded in Boise. And so uh, there's just these people who like understand search since the early days, or like the guy who built um, uh, about.com who like scaled all of their search rankings, if you remember back in like 2004 to 2008, when they ranked for just absolutely everything. Okay. Like he's a friend who lives here in Boise. So okay. there's like this quiet, like OG internet marketer <laughs> community here. And talking to this one guy, uh, a friend of mine named Ron, he's like, hey, Ron, this is what I was saying. I was like, I'm selling this book. And I thought Twitter and Facebook and you know Instagram was new at the time. Like, this is where all the sales would come from. And they're all coming from email. And he's giving me this look. He's like, yeah, we've known that since 2000. Like, what do you want? Like a gold star? Like, you know, you're going here and just saying, you know, I don't know if I like came into the real estate community and started telling you like all the most obvious things yeah <laughs> you'd be like yes you're like congrats alone to buy out. real estate <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> um and so anyway like that was a new fantastic discovery for me and i was like does everybody know this so i just started diving in of like okay what are all the best practices how do you grow your list the fastest what automations should you set up what incentives should you give away um all of these things, how should you have like guest posts to get traction back to your site, you know, all of this. And I did it all in MailChimp and just found that the process was pretty painful of like, I'd come up with some best practice or learn it and try to implement it. And I'd write all this custom code. And it's like, okay, this doesn't make sense. And so in this journey to go from content creation to, uh, um, I wanted to get back into building software 
then I decided that, okay, the next thing I'm going to build is a, you know, an email product, MailChimp, but for, for me, for content creators. And so that's how it started in uh, January, 2013. And did this happen before or after? So when I was doing some digging, you have a quote, you said, Jason Fried of Basecamp taught me that making money is a skill, just like playing an instrument or learning to create. Had that already happened? And I'm just really curious, like, what did he tell you? Like, how did he tell, what was his version of like how you make money? Do you remember? Yeah, so he talks about it. He actually has a couple of public talks, um, I think about this, where um, he talks about in the early days of his career, working at, I think a sporting goods store and uh, like selling shoes and the skills that go into that and and things that you, you learn. So I, it wasn't like he sat me down and taught me this individually, but he's, you know, and I have this list of like web design mentors and app design mentors. And Jason would be, you know, in that list of uh, business mentors who just consumed absolutely every piece of content uh, that Jason and all these other guys put out. Um, I'm not sure the timing of when I learned that, but I was super interested in making money. And I, uh, I always thought, so I, I grew up in a family where money was very, very scarce. And so, um, you know, I, I thought that money came down to luck or maybe career choice. Like I had an uncle who was a uh, doctor who made, you know, he was the wealthiest person that I, you know, had that I knew of. And thankfully even him was very good with money. Like I remember, you know, in 2005, he was driving a 20 year old Saturn or something like that. You yeah. know? So like, <laughs> not, not like the, the doctor who it's all loans and, uh, all that. He was, he was a fantastic, uh, financial role model. When I started to learn following like the content creators, like Tim Ferriss and Chris Gillibo, and then, um, you know, business operators like Jason Fried and others, and they're talking about like the set of skills that you can learn. And I was like, oh, okay, wait, sales is a skill. Copywriting is a skill. All of these things in the same way that accounting or, or these other things I started learning in school were, then I was like, wait, I'm just going to get really, really good at all of these skills. Um, and that's basically what it turned into before ConvertKit, uh, or around the time I was starting ConvertKit, I got to the point where I was making 200 to 250,000 a year selling digital products, you know, to my audience. And it was just like, okay, I think I've, I've got this figured out now. How do we productize it, um, and make it easier for other people? There's now over 500 and I guess 50,000 folks that have, I would, cons- I guess that would be a newsletter on ConvertKit. Is that fair? Yeah. Yep, exactly. Yeah. So that's the the total, you know, free accounts and there's 45,000 uh, people like active uh, customers paying for ConvertKit. Okay. Uh, why? Okay. You said, you just said a second ago, you said, well, email was obvious to everybody that was already in marketing. And I feel like we're having this, maybe it's me because I'm a little bit further removed from the conversation, but I feel like we're having this resurgence where everybody's starting to wake up again and go, we've tried, we've, there's been all this innovation over the last decade and email is really where it all is at. Why is that? Why are people coming back to email, do you think? Or yeah, or like why has the why has email always kind of I think it was always dominant throughout it, but I think there was this narrative for all these years that it was going to go away and there was going to be all these other things and then we've kind of learned a lot of lessons yep. and now we're back to okay, this really is the thing. Right. Email's greatest strength is also its greatest weakness. And so its greatest strength is that you can have this direct connection with individuals who in in a 
piece of real estate that they highly value, right? If you think about in my email inbox, the things next to it are uh, the contract that I need to sign, you know, um, the email I got, you know, from my uncle saying, hey, are we doing that family vacation here? Because if so, I need to plan to book it. Like there's a lot of high value things in there. And I've set up filters so that a lot of the low value stuff doesn't end up in there. Um, and then, so that's one very positive side. Compare that to say um, Twitter, Instagram, where, you know, any content that I put out, who knows what it's next to. My tweet might be next to someone, you know, talking about sports. It might be talk- next to uh, an ad about any content. I don't know. Like the single to the noise ratio is way higher on email, um, generally speaking, than it is on these social networks. So that's the upside. The downside is that the social networks are really good at discovery of saying, here's an algorithm that we know what you want to see. And so we're going to feed you more of that, or at least we're going to try. And that's why like TikTok has taken off like crazy um, is because they have a very aggressive uh, algorithm prioritizing what they think you might find interesting based on the data they've learned about you over who you subscribe to. And so like having a million followers on TikTok is not that meaningful um, because you're still going to get shown like just because you follow someone doesn't mean you're going to see their content. Um, Like your behavior is driving more of that. And so the social networks have all kinds of of discovery features in there. You can grow an audience there. It's really hard to grow an audience on email because there's there's zero built-in discovery, right? You know, if you're like, wow, this is the best email that I've read, you have to go somewhere else to share it other than like forwarding it. And even if you forward it to like, you know, a few coworkers or something, they're like, okay, how do I subscribe? Who is this creator? <laughs> go to the bottom, you know, or something else. Or like, here's, you know, go to Nathan Berry and like subscribe to his newsletter, right? Um, it's not as easy as just hitting a follow button. And so I think email has had just this steady growth over time. And you can see it, right? The biggest email lists years ago were, um, uh, you know, like 10,000 people, right? And now the biggest email lists are 2 million. Um, there's there's a huge difference in audience growth, but it's just been a steady, steady progress over time. Um, and then what happens is people get really excited about something. The, the hype cycle is basically, you get really excited about something that drives dis- discovery. So Twitter threads, TikTok, YouTube, whatever's happening. And then at some point you get jaded by the fact that the algorithm is not working in your favor. And you're like, I want a way to reach these people directly. Because Facebook starts saying, hey, I know you have 100,000 fans for your Facebook page. Um, You can now reach 5,000 of them with each post unless you pay us. And so then you're like, all right, forget Facebook. I want, you know, something that I control much more. And so you end up in this hype cycle between how do I get more discovery and how do I get more direct connection? And that's the cycle that we go in every few years. Um, and email is just steady growth uh, throughout that. And is it fair to say that for the the biggest creators out there, their their main objective now is to get you to sign up for their email newsletter? Like that is the final goal. Like they could have millions of followers everywhere, but I feel like I'm seeing everybody's driving everybody back to email now. Is that a fair assessment, or is that just some folks and not everybody? I think it's becoming a lot more common. I wouldn't say it's everyone. Like if you if you define creator as a lot of people that we run in similar circles to, then absolutely. 
right? The the James Clears, Ryan Holidays, all of them, they're like, they're all in on email. Um, uh, even like Nick Huber or others, right? Truly understand the value there and push it a lot. Um, if we go broader in with the creator sense, you know, someone who's built a million followers on TikTok um, or Instagram or YouTube, very few of them are actually using email at this time. You get people like, a good example would be Ali Abdal, who's a, uh, he was a doctor in the UK. Uh, as he's going through med school, he started making um, video content about what he was studying and about productivity and study hacks and that sort of thing. And then he ended up building a whole, uh, you know, like a massive YouTube channel. And now he's actually stopped. He's no longer a practicing <laughs> doctor and he's all in on, on YouTube and his 3 million subscriber following. He fully understands the value of email. And so he uses... YouTube as his top of the funnel, right? How do I get discovery and more reach? And then he tries to pull as many of them to uh, email as possible. And so I think that's really common to people who understand it. So in, in our circles, yes, absolutely. But if you go to like pop culture creators, it's still still very undiscovered. And is that because like, uh, if you take a, a pop culture, I guess you'd call them like an influencer, a celebrity, is there a reason why they don't? Is like what the, what they're offering not really beneficial in an email as opposed to like a Nick Huber sweaty startup? He's got like he's more business oriented. He's got things he can sell. Like why is it that some people are gravitating to it quicker and like maybe a I don't know a Kim Kardashian wouldn't need a newsletter? Yeah. Well, I think there's some of what he feels hip and exciting. If part of your identity is caught up in being cool then you want to catch the next wave. And email is just the wave that like, I don't know, I don't know how the analogy breaks down. It's still here. <laughs> yeah. You know, we've got a, a Kelly Slater, like permanent wave here coming, you know? And, and so it's not interesting from, from that side. That said, there's some great newsletters. Tim McGraw runs a great newsletter on ConvertKit. Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger just started his second newsletter on ConvertKit. Um, he had one that was um, uh, very much, you know, life, here's what's going on. He'd send it once a month. And then now he's got his daily pump email um, that's going out. And it is it is blowing up. Uh, like, it's really, really interesting. They're adding like 10,000 subscribers a day to it right now, um, at least when they're promoting it. And so it's fun to see him like on Jimmy Kimmel or something talking about like, hey, here's my new email newsletter. You should check it out. Uh, and people are are absolutely loving it. And you can tell that it's written by him because like some of the paragraphs are three times longer than they probably should be, <laughs> you know, but it's fun. It's like, it's his content. And uh, um, so I think you see the, these different waves of it, but I don't think email will ever be the, uh, like the trendy thing that everyone's rushing to reserve their usernames on, you know, or uh, like the next clubhouse or something. It's, it's not going to happen. You probably know this better than I do, but when I think of why email is so popular, uh, at least from my perspective, is that's the like I check email. I don't I mean, I hate to admit this. I probably check it 20, 30 times a day. And I can't ever foresee a world where I'm not checking email unless we go back to handwritten letters. Like it it just seems like there can you innovate much more than email in the email world? Like we kind of got what we got. I can't see how that continues to evolve. Is, is that a fair statement? I think there's a lot more innovation that could happen. Uh, and we're, we're trying to spear some of that. But yeah, I think the thing is that, it, I mean, it's it's a constant in your life. And until that 
like if I'm trying to set up a, you know, if I'm saying like, Hey, I'm in your city, let's meet up. I'm, I'm doing it over email. You know, I'm trying to pull in more people. And so until that goes away, uh, emails always going to be there at the core because everything else is so fragmented. Um, I was reading a Reddit thread, you know, yesterday, what's not cool anymore. What was cool is not cool anymore. Yeah. Facebook was yep. one of the top voted options. <laughs> and you're like, oh, <laughs> yep. You know? And so when this constantly shifts, um, like email is the thing that is continually there. Yeah. I've gotten off Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat. I've gotten back on Snapchat. I mean, the one thing, if I look back over since the beginning of time is email is the only thing that's been consistent. What What is it? Is there anything on the top of your mind that you'd be willing to share of how email could be better? That's not obvious to someone like me that just buys real estate. Well, I think email's biggest problem is, is discovery. And so I, that's, um, pretty interesting. Uh, there's a company called spark loop that, uh, we've invested in that is working a lot on like helping creators recommend each other. Um, and all of that, cause you want it where you can focus on great content and then that can, um, you know, that can really spread and share, um, trying to think of what other things I, I think the email reading experience, like, like newsletters, um, so if we go with YouTube, for example, and I don't know how deep we want to go into like creator platform algorithms, but um, YouTube talks about or values watch time. That's the metric that they're paying attention to. And so if you click into a video and you watch 30 seconds of it and you're like, whatever, that wasn't good. Then YouTube's like, oh, never mind. <laughs> like show that to fewer people. That wasn't a good hit. But then, you know, if you're watching a lot, then they're like, wow, this this channel kept someone on YouTube watching ads and engaging for a long period of time. And you can see a shift in video length that came from watch time being a thing, right? right? Like a long YouTube video used to be five minutes. Now a long YouTube video is 40 minutes. You know, like imagine, I think when Casey Neistat was doing his vlog, a lot of the episodes were longer and those were like seven to 10 minutes. And now a long vlog is 40 to 50 minutes. Um, cause the algorithm is rewarding that if you can keep someone engaged for that long, then YouTube is like, show this channel to more people. One thing that I think would be interesting is, um, having like a read time analysis for, uh, engaging with email, right? If you keep sending me the fifth follow-up to like schedule that meeting, uh, you know, because you're <laughs> like the ones that I get, I get the private equity emails all the time. And it's like, look. I am not engaged with any emails from this person other than, you know, three years ago, I said, thanks, but we're not interested. And they continue to follow up. Like just automatically sort that. It's not spam. They're allowed to send me that email, or, but it's just like, hey, you told me with your behavior that this is not interesting to you. And and so I think that um, whether it's Gmail or uh, the next superhuman or something like that could train a really interesting algorithm around a prioritized inbox based on who I engage with. And right now, the only thing that, or the only metrics that ConvertKit can track are like open rate. They, open and click. Open yeah. and click. Deliverability too. So, uh, what is deliverability? So, uh, basically, did the email server accept the okay, email? Okay, got it. Um, and then was it opened? And then uh, what inside the email was clicked on? But you don't have no uh, idea like how long they've been reading it or, you know. Correct. You'd have to be an inbox provider like a Gmail or a Yahoo or something 
uh, to be able to do something on that side of things. There's a lot of limitations um, that like email in some ways gets set in stone and does not change. And then like, well, like one, um, if you send an email, you can't change the contents of the email after it's sent, right? That's something that we understand. It no longer lives on your server. And that's been widely accepted. Um, but two years ago, we released a feature where let's say you send out an email and you're like, hey, my book is coming out. Click here to buy it. And you immediately get that reply back and that says like, hey, by the way, the uh, link's broken, 404. And you realize like, oh, I put an extra slash in there. And you're like, I just sent that email out to 20,000 people. And you know you feel like a total idiot, but you cannot change the email. Um, one thing that we realized um, that I, I don't think any other email provider has copied yet um, I should get our patents going on it. I don't know if <laughs> this is patentable. Um, because that email hits our, or that link hits our server first, you can change where the link goes. And so in ConvertKit, if you make a mistake, you can go in and edit and say like, oh, the link was supposed to go to nathanberry.com slash book, but I typoed it. And so I can go in and fix that. And that will fix seamlessly. So you end up like with small innovations. I mean, that one feels big if you ever make that mistake. Um, but otherwise, email doesn't, it doesn't change very often because it's decentralized. That's so like we have a big advantage with it being decentralized because no one can control like this is the algorithm, you're deplatformed, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but then on the other hand, you can't really innovate because you can't, you can't innovate on parts of it because you can't control the the protocol that everyone's using. Yeah, no, I get that. Is would you say? Uh, I don't even know how to ask this. And when you said, "Well, like the the providers uh, hold all the data, like Gmail or Outlook," is there any reason why they would ever want to share that data with you, or is that is that will that always be kind of kept separate? Like, do you think that those email providers love people like you or not? I guess. Yeah, there's an organization. Um, I couldn't even tell you the acronym. It's it's. Uh, it's called MOG, which is a very long acronym uh, that you get into, which is the the like official association of all, like all the inbox providers are in there, the major email providers are in there, and it's you know where you're building relationships with with everyone there. So it's um, everyone talks really well. We're a member of it, um, you know, and and so we have a lot of good relationships with like the people who run compliance at Gmail and that sort of thing. Um, but no, I don't. I don't think any big company has any desire to give up their data. Um, we're we're also at the point, you know. It's interesting as we start to reach data at scale, right? Because we send two billion emails a month, um, which is tiny compared to a Mailchimp. But also, there's like eight hundred million email addresses that we've now seen, and we can start to learn interesting things about it, right? Like a lot of what we do is around fighting spam and fraud. Um, Turns out, if you don't want to learn about the dark side of the internet, like don't start an email company. Yeah, because, <laughs> you know, I employ five full time people. You know, almost almost ten percent of my team just on this one problem. Um, but we're able to start to do a lot of things. Like if you import a list, chances are we've seen most of those emails before. So even before you hit send, we know like, uh, yeah, no, like we've seen this before. Um, two thirds of these people like looks like scraped lists or whatever. Like we know it's not going to deliver. Um, or on the other side, we can look at it. Like 
I'm making this up. I haven't actually looked, right? But if you import your subscriber list, it's probably like, oh, this generally overlaps with um, some amount of Ryan Holiday, Nick Huber, uh, you know, a bunch of other people who like have some really, really engaged lists on ConvertKit. And so our compliance systems are like, without knowing anything about you, are like, oh, this Chris Powers guy seems like pretty legit because of who's on your list um, that you're bringing in. So we're starting to have like that data at scale as well. That's interesting. What is something uh, like, what is something bad that somebody could do that you guys could detect immediately? Like set up a scam business using ConvertKit or like what are the, what's the dark side of, of newsletters that might not be obvious? Yeah, so like a classic one would be ConvertKit offers landing pages, right? It's a helpful service. You have a book coming out, you're starting a newsletter. It's pretty basic. Um, but a common one that we would see people attempt to do every day is like um, make a social security administration page out of ConvertKit landing pages and then say like, then email a bunch of people and say like, hey, update your, you know, this is the social security administration or this is the census bureau, like update whatever, you know, and then you're sending to a bunch of scraped uh, um, emails and, you, and so you're doing like phishing or identity theft at scale. Or another classic one um, is credit card testing. So you take a whole bunch of credit cards that you bought, maybe you buy 100,000 cards and then you have to, card numbers, and then you have to test which ones can accept a certain level of payment. Um, and so you'd use digital products um, or that sort of, like you try to buy small amounts of things and then the cards that do well, uh, that actually can accept payments, then you're gonna load those on physical cards and then pay someone, um, you know, basically the equivalent of a drug mule or something to go into the, you know, Apple store, Louis Vuitton, some type of product that has a really high resale value uh, and buy those. And then you have that physical product. It can't be charged back on you. And then you're going to sell it. And that's how you're completing your money laundering or, you know, whatever your scam. So there, there's like that times a thousand basically. Yeah. <laughs> and that's happening all day, every day. Yeah. And that's, that's crazy. That's how it works. And so sometimes a creator will, will there will be something that a creator doesn't understand of like, why did this happen? Or why did I get like 10 um, purchases of my ebook, like back to back, and they were all refunded. And it's like, well, someone used your ebook to test credit cards, and we detected it, shut it down. Um, so yeah, anyway, it's a, it's a whole, <laughs> a whole world. <laughs> as you analyze data, or as you just look at the creator world, like as we sit here today in 2023, a creator today looks a lot different than a creator in 2012, I guess, when you get started. If I just asked you a loaded question, like what do the best creators that you know of today do really well besides the fact that they're already popular and have like huge audiences? Like what are the tactics that they have put into their days or their business model that are really making them successful? Yeah, so let's say you already know how to show up consistently, you know, like there's all this table stakes stuff that you have to do to, to become successful of showing up consistently for a long time, continually honing your skills, all of that. So then if we get into the business model side of it, um, I think the most interesting creators are ones who probably have a range of products to sell. Like we referenced Ryan Holiday earlier. He's pretty interesting with his daily stoic business. Um, because they they have digital products that they're selling, 
they have physical products with these coins that they're they're doing um you know they just did a limited edition uh printing of uh like a, a leather bound copy of meditations by marcus aurelius you know like they they have this niche and they're just serving it so well and um and so the the amount of things that you could buy from them it doesn't feel like they're overly selling they're just like people are like oh that would be interesting if and they're like good idea you know and they're they're providing that um i think another thing that's like a fascinating trend that was not happening or that i didn't notice 10 years ago at least is uh creators doing things for equity um particularly in their own businesses but um i wrote a blog post on this that i called the billion dollar creator and it's just asking the question of what's the highest roi place that you could point attention right we we could point it, you know, I've got 10,000 people on my newsletter. Um, I could point that those people to an ad, I could point them to an ebook, anything, right? Um, and these creators who are saying, I'm going to point it to a business that I own all of or some of. So two examples on this. Um, I want to be a guy named Mark Sisson, who he ran a blog called Mark's Daily Apple. It was I think the most popular blog in the paleo uh, diet space um, and health and fitness and all of that um, back in maybe 2012, 2013. Um, I would guess from just what I've heard, this isn't verified, that he was making about a million dollars a year off of this blog through affiliate links, uh, his own products, all of that. That's an amazing living. He is absolutely killing it. Um, and he was doing it in the early days, and he did this for years. But like, there's no way that you're going to become a billionaire or make hundreds of millions of dollars off of that. But what's, what he did next, what I think is really interesting, and that is he took his audience and he said, okay, what products do they want? And what products do I want? And he decided that he wanted to make a paleo-friendly mayonnaise and a paleo-friendly ketchup. And so he started Primal Kitchen with those two products, pretty limited product line, right? And then they, they he can immediately, you know, uh, meet his minimum order quantities because he's got, you know, 100 or 200,000 subscriber email list. You know, he has his brand reputation, all that. So he can launch this product. He's got relationships in the community. Um, and so they can build it up and scale it. Uh, those initial sales let him, you know, start to get retail distribution. Because he can also say, like, hey, Whole Foods or whoever, right? Like, test this in one store. Because, you know, and they're like, okay, we'll see how it goes. And then he can geotarget and email, you know, 10,000 people and be like, okay, big favor. <laughs> Please go into Whole Foods <laughs> and buy, you know, <laughs> let's sell out of Primal Kitchen Manis. Um, and then that happens, right? And so then he can go back and be like, hey, it seems like we're doing really well in Austin. How about... We, uh, you know, we try San Antonio, you know, <laughs> like, you know, and you work your way up from there. So the the punchline of the story is that with, I think it only took three, maybe four years, and he sold Primal Kitchen to Kraft for $200 million. And so when you're asking, what's the highest ROI of where you could point an audience, something you own equity in, uh, I keep thinking of other quick ones. Uh, Ryan Reynolds is absolutely killing this playbook, doing so, so well with it. Because like, who knows what it costs? Maybe years ago, you're like, Ryan, I'll pay you a million dollars to 
be the face of this commercial or whatever. And somewhere in there, he said, he was like, yes, yes. Somewhere he goes, no. I want to own the company that I'm, you know, the face of. I want the upside of what's happening. Um, and so he did that, you know, buying into Mint Mobile, Aviation Gin. And he's like, look, I'm going to promote all my own things uh, and get the full upside of it. Uh-uh. I think another example, you know, it, yeah, Mr. Beast, even if we take it, like bring it back into the, like the um, real estate Twitter community, right? Like a lot of these guys, anyone raising a fund, if you are demonstrating that you're really smart at what you're doing um, and all of that over time, then you're having people who are like, oh, I, I never would have heard, heard of you before because I'm not in your market or whatever else, but you seem to be a great capital allocator. Like, can I put a million dollars into your fund? And these people might have 5,000 followers on Twitter. And so their their revenue per follower would be, if you <laughs> graphed that way, would be completely off the charts uh, because they got the right people. And so it's like, should they be taking a sponsored post from whoever? Maybe, maybe not. But the, the highest... Um, uh, the highest return on investment for that, like where you focus your audience, could be orders of magnitude bigger than uh, whatever someone else is saying it is. If you're like me, you like to wake up and get your daily dose of reading. For me, a lot of that has to do with commercial real estate because of the industry that we're in at Fort Capital. And the news is important. But if you're a busy real estate professional like me, you don't have time to skim through the dozens of dry and ad-filled media outlets each day. That's why I read CRE Daily, a free email newsletter that cuts through the clutter and delivers concise, witty commentary on the latest trends and transactions in commercial real estate. I discovered CRE Daily a few months ago, and it's an email I actually look forward to getting each morning. If you're a real estate professional, you owe it to yourself to try it out and stay on top of what's happening in the industry in only five minutes. To give their free daily newsletter a try, visit CREdaily.com. That's CREdaily.com. People ask me all the time, just, you know, what's the podcast for you? It's a lot of things, but one of it is building trust at scale. I mean, if you listen to enough of my episodes, I can't fake who I am. Maybe in one episode I could, but if you listen to five, it's like, okay, this is kind of who I'm dealing with. And it's interesting as you bring up like the fun business, because money raising's always been, you know, in these closed circles um, for a lot of a lot of history. And now you get I get people that I've known forever, like, well, you just raise a bunch of money because of your podcast now. And I'm like, you're saying, one, you're saying that like it's a bad thing, but two, you're saying it like you're probably not going to be doing it in five years too. I mean, as I think about where we're headed in the world, um, like people would rather have a Mr. Beast burger than a Burger King or Primal Primal Foods or whatever it's called instead of Heinz Kraft Ketchup or whatever. Um and so as I think about like where the creator world's headed, and maybe we can push the conversation there a little bit is like, what are the really interesting things on the horizon? Because in a lot of ways, you could say we're just kind of scratching the surface and what creators are going to be able to do. The legacy media is starting to take a backseat to podcasting. You know, people like you said, Ryan Reynolds is buying sports teams and starting all these companies and he probably didn't have a business degree. You know, Mr. Beast make YouTube videos and now he's one of the wealthiest people in the world. As you think about like, what are the things that people will start doing more of and what they'll be doing less of as we move forward? Like what comes to mind? Well, I think the first thing is that people often see the examples in 
the famous examples, right? Mr. Beast, Ryan Reynolds, that kind of thing. And what I think is really interesting is bringing those home, right? Because you and I are not trying to be, have no intention to be, and even if we were, like it's never gonna happen of being the next Mr. Beast, all right? That's not the angle that we're going. And so it's pretty easy to think like, oh, that doesn't, like that is interesting or novel, but it doesn't apply to us. But then you get something like, um, uh, you know, like a mutual friend of ours, Levi James, shared on Twitter something like how he'd raised, I don't know what it was, $75 million, something crazy from LPs through Twitter, right? And you bring that really close to home and it's like, oh, that is our world. That is, you know, how that works. And so I think we're going to see a lot more examples of people learning some of the lessons from someone who's crazy famous and then applying it to like a very specific business that doesn't seem like it applies. Um, another example um, we might be like Mitchell Baldrich, who is a fantastic CPA. I know him originally through his content. And then, you know, we get to know each other. We're doing a project together now, right? Because there's things that he can help convert it out on. Um, and it's all, he's doing this creator playbook, but he's building, you know, a services business based off of it. And it's going to work really, really well. So I think if in the past there was creator businesses and regular businesses, and those were two different worlds, and creator businesses are like influencers, uh, ads, that kind of thing, and regular businesses, everything else, I think the biggest trend you're going to see is those just totally merging. And there won't be very many businesses left that don't have like the top people in them using the creator playbook. Because like you can apply it basically off of every industry. Even if you took something totally different, like mentioned my uncle who's a doctor, you know, let's go something like a specialty surgery um, or even maybe something you're shopping for, like um, a cosmetic surgery of some kind, right? Like you would start to trust the person who's talking about it and has built a reputation in this space. And you're like, do I want to go to someone random or do I want to go to this person who has built the whole reputation in this space? And you're like, I'm going for that person all the time. Um, and so I think you're going to just see that apply to every different industry. And then the other thing is, um, you're going to see more and more creators move from not, can I get paid $5,000 for this promotion, but what equity can I get? And then more interestingly is, um, you know, can I start the business? I have the audience. What business should I start? Uh, cause there's just so many high value, you know, like what's the, like there's all kinds of different multiples in different businesses. You know, it's like, how can I bring this attention into something that will pay me a higher multiple or, or the value of it will compound over time. Um, and that's effectively what I did with ConvertKit, right? Where, um, I decided I didn't, I couldn't articulate back then that this was the path that I was following, but it turns out building an audience and pointing it to growing a software company is way more valuable than, you know, pointing that audience to content about how to design software. You know, one of them has recurring revenue, massive multiples, um, all of that. And the other, um, you know, is a great cash flow and income stream, but, but not like a long-term, uh, a long-term business. Yeah. I mean, it, I, it's a, I mean, the smallest example of them all is I've been following you. Uh, we become friends online. I follow your newsletter. 
And it took a couple of years. And now when it was time to start a newsletter, it was like, oh, I'm immediately, this is where I'm going to start it. It wasn't even a thought. And a lot of it was, even though we hadn't met in person, I was like, I feel like I would be cheating on him if I went anywhere else. (laughs) But I think that's how a lot of people feel about a lot of products because you get to know somebody who's not sitting here saying like, I'm the reason, I'm the guy, it's all about me. It's more like I'm here providing value to the world. And oh, by the way, I have this thing. And if you have found value in what I have, maybe you'll found value in this and it starts to compound. And, you know, my podcast isn't big by any stretch of the imagination compared to some, but already seeing the early signs of folks that are like, hey, will you invest with us? You know, can we do an episode with you? Um, you know, we have this business. We'd love to be on the podcast. And like, I don't know how that'll all flush out. But as I see the early signs of these conversations, I can only sit here and go, man, if, if I 10x this thing over the next five years, if they're already starting now, I can't imagine what the opportunities become down the road. Um, and it's really exciting. Well, and especially as that, that compounds, because what you're going to find is, let's say if you have your first 100 listeners, maybe five of them or 10 of them are really high value. Like it's a smaller percentage, but then as it builds up, you're going to get this reputation with people who, um, you know, are the kinds of people that you want to reach who are like, you know, their equivalent might be, um, like on one hand, it's like, Oh, I'd be feeling like I'm cheating on Nathan. If I signed up for a different email product than ConvertKit. you know, it could be like, okay, I'm, looking to figure out the next funds that I'm investing in. And I've been listening to Chris forever and like, oh, I need to try to in- see if I can invest in one of his next deals or, you know, like that could apply all across the board. And so just that level, um, I think it applies to basically every business. You think we'll ever have like a a Grammy or an Emmy awards for creators? Because Hollywood's always controlled who's famous and who's not. That's not the case anymore. I mean, I would argue the people that everybody thinks are famous in Hollywood are their their stock values dropping quicker as like a Mr. Beast is rising. Is there ever a world where like we honor the creators and we build a world around them? Or is it good that they kind of maintain independent and they're not controlled by any one entity or thing? That's kind of a decentralized deal, whereas Hollywood is very centralized. I mean, it'll definitely come over time. There's still a long ways to go. Like, um, and there's so many different kinds of creators. So like, you know, are you doing this just for podcasts? Like, uh, I think it's podcast movement does have podcast awards, right? But we're still like at such a tiny scale. Um, there's book author awards. All right. Things are in these different niches. Um, Another thing that happens is like the level of name recognition versus space recognition is interesting. So I've run a conference for a few years and we've had a lot of people out to speak. One year we had Casey Neistat out to speak. Uh, you know, he he's walking through the Boise airport and this is Boise, right? And he's already got people being like, Casey, you know, all of that. Um, the next year we had Mark Manson who has sold an insane number of copies of his books and all that. And Mark attended, he was speaking on the second or third day, or second day at the end, and he attended the entire conference. And I think some people knew who he was, but after he got on stage, tons of people want to talk to him afterwards. But he was there in the audience like the whole time, you know, and this guy sold tens of millions of books, um, but he chose a medium where his face isn't recognizable. Um, and so in, you know, he shows up on video podcasts or whatever else, but you don't read his book and know 
um, like, oh, that's what it looks like. Whereas Casey Neistat, um, you know, if you engage with him, like 99% chance through his YouTube videos. And so you know what he looks like. So I think as we talk about fame, it's a really interesting thing. Uh, I was talking to a friend who does a lot of work in Hollywood and she w- she and I were headed to the same conference and she was like, yeah, it's a bunch of founders. She was telling him, it's a bunch of founders, really wealthy, successful, all of that, you know? And he goes, wait, so they're rich and not famous? <laughs> Damn, that must be nice. <laughs> you know, like yeah. <laughs> they can go to the grocery store and like, yeah, blend you in. Know, no hat and sunglasses. And so I think what's going to be interesting is as a creator, you can decide how, in what forms you want to be famous. If you're like, look, I want to be known for my content and I never want to get recognized on the street, like perfect. Stick to writing and Twitter. You know, if you're like, hey, I, I want like that attention. I want to show up to a VidCon or something and like have a thousand people trying to see me, then like YouTube is your thing. Personally, what I want is I want to be famous enough that when I reach out to someone, they want to take the call or the email, but not so famous that I ever get recognized on the street. That is a, that is a perfect amount of fame. You said recently in a tweet, you said one of the greatest creators that you're watching right now grow is uh, somebody that maybe a lot of folks on this podcast will know of is Sahil Bloom. What's he doing so well? Like if you had to give a, you know, uh, your synopsis of why he has emerged in the last couple of years and really he's built a hell of a brand. What's he doing differently than others? Yeah, there's a lot of things. So I think of Sahil, hopefully this is a fair characterization. Um, I think of him as the next James Clear. And I've had a front row seat to both of them um, building their brands. Uh, Like James and I have been friends since before he launched his uh, evenjamesclear.com. So there's a lot of parallels in what they're doing the first thing, if we if we go with Sahil, he chose one uh, platform and stuck with it relentlessly. And so a lot of people are saying like, yeah, I've got Twitter going, I've got my blog. And then they like hear an interview with someone who's doing really well on YouTube and they're like, okay, I guess I got to launch YouTube. And they hear an interview with someone who's doing well on TikTok. And I'm like, okay, how do we turn that into clips? And we'll go on, on TikTok. And, and so that is not a winning strategy. Um, I would find one platform that has really good built-in distribution and that algorithm is made for discovery. And I would go in on that and I would basically ignore everything else. And I'd have a funnel back to email. Sahil did that really, really well, you know, and he's like from going from nothing to, I don't know what he's at, 750,000, 800,000 followers on Twitter in two and a half, three years. Like he started when, when we all got locked inside for COVID, that's when (laughs) Sahil started on Twitter. (laughs) So that's the first thing, focus on one channel. Like he has since expanded, but he got his growth engine dialed in on Twitter first. Um, the second thing is the quality of his content is really, really good. And the thing that he's nailed is high quality content consistently. And a lot of people can do one or the other. Um, and so he's basically made it his full-time job to create you know, this quality of content. Um, and that's gone really well. Um, kind of the next thing that he did is focused really deliberately on his newsletter and growing that. Um, and so he's like, now you see him trying out a lot of things that are, are like kind of tried and true ways to grow your newsletter. He's just doing it 
with a much bigger audience at this point, like on, on Twitter. So for example, something that we've done from the early days is um, like writing a guide or an ebook on something specific in your industry. So it's like a 20 to 40 page book, you know, worksheet resource, something that's like really detailed, goes behind the scenes and say, and giving that away. Um, and I watched Sahil add 20,000 subscribers in three days or something um, by really heavily promoting his like um, how to do an annual review guide. And it was really good, right? But then he, you know, he was able all the, to go to these relationships that he built and say, hey, you know, will you promote this? Will you share it um, and amplify it himself on Twitter? Um, so that's really impressive. He's also, uh, he, like he's working on a book right now. I'm not sure how much he's talked about publicly, but you just see him like relentlessly saying, okay, sign the book deal. And now we have a release date. And he is just pursuing, like, how do I get the email list absolutely as big as possible um, between now and then? And so he's very, very focused. And like, you can't distract that man if you tried. If you're like, hey, will you do this? He's just like, does it help me grow the, the audience for the book launch? I think the other thing that's interesting is uh, he's going on like a pre-book tour in India. And so he's realized that he's grown a good part of his audience in India. And so he's like, okay, now I'm flying to India and I'm going to appear in person on as many large podcasts in India as possible. Um, and I think a lot of us are just like in our circles. And if you told me like, hey, by the way, you have a huge audience in I don't know, Australia or something. I'd be like, uh, okay, that's neat. <laughs> you know? Hello, man. And he's immediately like, okay, how can I capitalize on this? And India happens to have, you know, <laughs> one of the world's largest populations. And so he's saying like, hey, I can actually build a much larger audience, um, potentially in India than even in, in the US. Um, and so I think that's fascinating. So there's a lot of things, but but basically that that playbook and the relentless execution yep. is the biggest thing. You wrote a tweet the other day. You said something like, "Do you would you rather have fifty thousand followers on Twitter or five thousand newsletter subscribers?" I think I know that it was uh, maybe not a trick question, but the answer is five thousand newsletter subscribers. Or is that right or wrong? I think it depends. Okay, um, I'd like to throw out these little questions, and I play with when I write it out. I play with the numbers to the point where it doesn't feel obvious. And if everybody goes one way, I'm like, shoot, that was, you know, I didn't get the ratio right. Like I had one, I can't remember if it was TikTok to Instagram, TikTok, I, I can't remember what I compared, but one of them people were like, no, the ratio is 50 to one, like a hundred to one, because uh, TikTok followers just aren't worth that much. Twitter, I, you know, that the ratio is probably 10 to one for me. Somewhere in there, five to one. I like. I think it's, um, I ultimately want email subscribers. That's what I care about because I know I can drive sales and action from there. Um, so if I'm trying to, let's see, what are the options? I'm, you know, trying to sell a book. I have a book come out and I want you to write reviews on Amazon. Um, we have a new ConvertKit feature and I want you to uh, upvote it on a product hunt. Like I can drive action for a lot of people from an email list. Um, or going back to the, uh, like the primal kitchen example, right? If I, I don't know that Mark Sisson did this, I would do it if I was him of like, we're first in whole foods and I want, like, I need this to be a win. 
I can tweet to everyone and be like, hey, if you happen to live in Austin, could you go and, you know, or I can just be like, hey, <laughs> I know that 500 of you live here. Like, I need you to go do this thing. And it's, I can make it look super personal and be like, hey, Chris, you know, <laughs> uh, we're, we're in the Fort Worth stores now. Could you <laughs> like, you Nathan's know? here, Nathan's here. Right. And so you can do those things. And I've done it so many times of like, I'm in LA for a conference and I'm like, throw together a meetup. And I write a super personal seeming email to the 200 people on my list who are in the LA area. Um, so that converts really well. And it's opposed to going on Twitter and just saying, Hey, I'm, even though you have 105,000 people on Twitter, however many you have, you say, uh, I'm going to be in LA. That just doesn't, is it how we consume information as consumers? Like, why would that not be as effective as reading it in an email? Well, what's the chance that you receive that message? Okay. That's what I, that's what I figured. It's, it's, there's, there's a high probability you never see it. Yep. And it's, so it's a targeted message. I need a certain group of people to do a certain thing. Now, if I'm trying to get anyone to broadly uh, amplify this idea, then Twitter is fantastic for that. It's probably better than email. Um, Because email, you could could like and favorite my email all day long. It doesn't do anything for me other than an eco boost. But if you're like replying and engaging with content or retweeting on Twitter or whatever else, then like more people are going to find and discover that. And so it's it's basically, if I want to reach more new people... I'm focusing on a platform like Twitter that has uh, built-in distribution. And if I'm trying to drive an action or build more engagement, I'm focusing on something like email or a podcast. Podcast has a lot of the pros and cons that uh, a lot of similar ones that email does. Would somebody like Elon Musk that has 130 million Twitter followers, would he benefit from a newsletter on ConvertKit? I think so. Because the other thing that you can do... I don't know if I should compare Nick Huber and Elon Musk. Um, <laughs> Nick will love this. He, yeah. His ego is already inflating as he's listening. Yeah. Here we go. Yes. Um, but like Nick does a really <laughs> good, entertaining job of like he has these top of funnel tweets, right? Where he's saying things that get all of this attention, right? Uh, and get, get all of this hate and everything else. Elon has the same problem. Right. He puts something out there, gets all this attention. Oh, Elon's the best. Elon's the worst. Right. All of this. And as you move down the funnel, in Nick's case, right, you're getting into some business focused content. People engage with that. And then you move down, like you get way down the funnel and you're like, here's how to do cost segregation, cash out, refi, blah, 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 blah. Right. And that's for a very specific group of people. Twitter's okay at that. Um, Email's really, really good at that. Right. And so I think for, for Elon Musk, it'd be interesting. If he had the same, what are the things that he really cares about that aren't the sound bites that he's throwing out there because he thinks it's entertaining to make this joke or he actually likes it when people misinterpret him or bash on him in whatever way? Um, I think it'd be fascinating if he was like, hey, this is what I care about. This is like the thoughtful version of it. This is what I want you to take action on. Um, I think it'd be very, very valuable. Um, I don't know that it'll ever happen, but I, I like seeing. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger is probably the best example of this, right? He can be entertaining and he can do all kinds of things, but but often there's things that he really wants you to do. Like a cause that he cares very deeply about is uh, gerrymandering and how like districts are getting, you know, voting districts are redrawn to achieve like very specific outcomes in a two-party system. And so if you're like, hey, this is 
uh, like districts are getting redrawn in this section of your state like next week. He can talk about it at a global level, but on email, he could go, you know, for the 20,000 people in Texas, like on my list, this is what's happening right now. Would you be interested in taking action on it? And so it's just, it's a much more thoughtful medium and I hope more people play with it. Well, you can't really fake it. Like what we learned maybe through the Twitter files or whatever is like you can have a lot of bots on social media that inflate follower counts that make people look like they have more clout, aka politicians or whatever. But you can't really, a politician can't really fake an email because you either unsubscribe immediately because you know you weren't part of it. Like you can't be fooled by it or can't, can you be fooled in email in any way besides not necessarily illegal stuff like credit card scams, but just clout wise? Well, you could, like people will gradually engage with your emails less and less, right? Something that I was interested in today, I might not be interested in three years from now but I might not unsubscribe. And so you would see that in your open rates and stats over time. And so like cleaning your list is important um, for a lot of reasons, but but one of them is, you know, there's no point in having a 100,000 subscriber email list if only 10,000 are reading your stuff. And so then we would say like, okay, it's time to go clear out those lists and, and clean things up. Um, really the only value would be if you're trying to sell a book deal, and you're like, I have 100,000 subscribers on my email list. And years ago, I don't think they knew enough to ask like, oh, cool, what's the open rate? Now I think they know to ask, you know? And so then they'd be like, oh, what's the, what's the average open rate on email? And if you're like 40% or 30%, they'd be like, this is amazing. This is a great community. And if you're like 5%, then they're like, okay, we'll file that away along with, you know, <laughs> it's, it's equal to maybe what you have on social platforms. What is like a, the best of the best open rate on a, a large email list at scale. Like it's, it's rare to see over 50%. Anything over 40% is really, really good. Um, there are some of these people who run multi-million subscriber email lists who are averaging 40 to 50% and doing it at that size of audience is, is very, very impressive. Yeah. And is, are most of those type of uh, email lists behind a paywall or are they open to anybody? Like, do is it is it Mostly, higher engagement if they pay? Generally, yes, because it's like, um, you know, you had to overcome that, that barrier to get on the list. Um, it's really the quality of the content. Um, yeah, paid email is a whole other thing that's, that's interesting. Um, I personally believe that like paid email newsletters are can be a challenging business model if you're not a professional writer. Because otherwise, you created a product for yourself that makes you, you have to show up every single week for it. Um, and the churn can be really high and uh, and all of that. And so I like things, like one of my favorite email products is if people do a paid email course where it's a one-time payment and then it's timed email. So it's like, hey, I'm going to teach you about uh, you know, design or uh, real estate investing or whatever other thing. And I'm doing it in this automated series that, you know, if I sign up today and you sign up next week, we get the emails time to ourselves or time to our own subscription date. And that's a format that's really easy to create. You know, if someone, if later you're like, oh, email four could be better in this way, you just go and edit it. It's not like an ebook where you're like, Got to remember to tell the designer to make these updates and get it back and send out a new version. Um, and so I really like that version. 
Because I never want to sign myself up, self up for a content treadmill of basically feeling like this thing that I love to do and was thrilled I got paid for. Um, now I have to do it. I think it's different if you're like if your career is as a journalist and you're like, look, I'm used to writing three articles a day, and you're saying I only have to write two a week, and I get you know, like that's fantastic. But most of us aren't professional journalists who have that muscle developed. Let's talk about that for just a little bit. You kind of have an inside view into this, like the legacy media versus the world of ConvertKit. When you see the earnings that the creators have as compared to being a journalist at a huge corporation with all this overhead and, you know, um, thing like what if, if we talked about the next 10 years, there, I mean, it, we're starting to see what's happening. But what is keeping some of the greatest journalists from just going right to themselves and starting to do their own stuff? Is it access to everything they get in the spin room of a big company or like I feel like we're at a tipping point? I know as a consumer, I trust, I would trust maybe your newsletter more than ConvertKit Corporation news, you know, whatever. It's like, I want to hear straight from the source. So how do you think about that as we go forward, as it relates to pure professional journalism, staying in the main media or creating their own brands and becoming their own creators? Well, I think you're going to see a lot of people build their experience and their buying line with a major brand. Right. Because do I want to start totally from scratch and like try to convince you why I'm interesting or all of that at a time when I myself have not built the skills? Because a lot of people are like, why don't you just do it on your own? It's like, look, I don't have the skills yet to show up consistently to be a great, like, I haven't spent 10 years with some of the best editors in the world being like, no, 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 not that, like this, and gradually learning. And I think we often downplay the craft and the amount of time that it takes because we see these examples of, of like something hitting and going viral. And it's like, oh, now go do your own thing. And it's like, look, you really don't have any more skills today than you did yesterday before you went viral. Like, and so I think people building and honing those skills, whether it's writing or design or uh, investing or anything else. Um, I think that's one thing. And then you build up the credibility, right? You're going to see a lot of people's bylines um, or, or bios where they're talking about like, I was a reporter here. I wrote for Vox for this period of time, or, you know, um, the Atlantic, whatever else, right? And that lends credibility as you're like, oh, even if it's just a small way, as you're saying, should I follow this person or not? And then once you reach a certain level of you feel like you have your skills honed and enough credibility, then you have those two options of like, should I do this in-house or should I go and start my own business? And I think a lot of people are like, well, it's a newsletter. It's not a business. And it's like, eh, it, it really, it is a business. Um, and so you have to make sure that that's what you want. Um, and a lot of people, you know, copywriting, driving sales, all of these, like they're real skills that you have to hone and learn, um, you know, how to do a product launch, how to get people to actually pay for like pricing and packaging. All of these things are skills that have to be learned. And if you don't want to go down that path, then I think it's a very compelling thing to say like, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to stay at this um, uh, news organization where I just have to worry about writing or where I have the support of great editors or everything else. Because otherwise you're, you're assembling it um, for the most part on your own. This is kind of a weird question. Well, it's not too, totally weird, but <laughs> you're kind of like the Spotify for newsletters. You, you provide a 
platform for artists to get their content out. As I think of like Joe Rogan, the pressure that Spotify got as Joe Rogan was just doing his thing. And then there was this pressure on Spotify, like you're going to keep him or you not. Have you ever run into that where like maybe somebody on your platform's writing and you're getting pressure to like censor them or take them down? Yeah, uh, we definitely have. Um, not as often as like a Spotify or a Substack or um, something that's like we're more behind the scenes. You might read um, like if you read James Clear's newsletter, you'd have to be paying attention to know that it's powered by ConvertKit. Right. Whereas if you read uh, someone on Substack, right, it's it's in the domain, it's in the footer, like you're seeing it all over the place. Um, and so there's less of like, oh, ConvertKit, you know, feel, like supports whatever. Um, we have had it where, um, you know, there have been some hot topic, like people <laughs> who are in the news uh, playing in that space. Thankfully, they've either been fairly clearly like inside our acceptable use policy and we're just like, no. Um, or actually the most common is don't respond, right? When people try to start something and just like, don't give it any oxygen. So we look, we look closely and see like, are they within our acceptable use policy? Yes or no. And then um, try to say as little publicly as possible because most everything will just die out. Um, and then thankfully the ones that have been high profile and outside of our acceptable use policy have been firmly outside of it. Yeah. <laughs> and so then like that made it pretty cut and dry. Like there's one uh, political, I don't know, character. We'll yeah. go with that. Um, who like their content was technically within our acceptable use policy, but their engagement rates were terrible. Their email list hygiene was terrible. Like they were driving balances and everything else. And so we avoided all of that. Like it was just clear they were, they were not a good fit for the platform. And so we uh, banned them. We, we, you know, we didn't agree with them politically and all of that, but it was very, very clear that they would, you know, harm the deliverability reputation of the platform if we let them continue. And is it your deal? Like, because again, even with Twitter is like, you become the mayor of ConvertKit. Like at the end of the day, the buck stops with your rule, but I'm assuming you don't want to be the arbitrar of free speech or this or that. And so is the, is the playbook just like, write a set of guidelines and this is what we're going to stick to. And if it sticks in there, good. If not, just try and create as little gray area as possible. Yeah, and um, we have a team inside, you, you know, like a little council that like evaluates all of these. And it's our our most like, uh, I was going to say black and white, and that's not the right way to think about it. But But the people who are just like, yeah, that content, I don't like it or I don't agree with it, but here's our guidelines, here's our principles. And um, like, the people who are much more likely to get involved in something like emotionally invested in something, those people are not on <laughs> the uh, content moderation <laughs> council because <laughs> it's just like, you can't, it's uh, like, that's not our, our, our place on the internet. The other thing is I think your role in moderation is a lot more important. Um, if you're running like discovery algorithms, if you're deciding should this, get put in front of more people. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. ConvertKit's not doing that. Yeah. Right? We're at the point where we're saying, if you come to us with your very edgy real estate newsletter, 
It's like, look, they signed up to hear from you. You know, you brought them in. Um, and that's a lot different than if we were like taking someone's questionable content and showing it in the algorithm to a bunch of other people. It's interesting. I'll ask you one more question. You can answer it or you don't have to when, and I assume like when I hear, like if I go back to the Joe Rogan case and it's like, all these people are calling Spotify to get him canceled. And part of me is like, maybe nobody's calling him. And that's just what we're being told to just kind of get us all. But I guess from my opinion, when somebody's wanting somebody to take something down from your perspective, is it usually like a reader of it? Is it the government? Like who are the, the people that want stuff taken down? If you post something popular on Twitter, um, say it's going to get a million or two million impressions, something like that. It's going to go through three distinct phases. And you'll notice this in the replies. The first is um, your actual follower, like your engaged followers. They're going to be like, this is great, or they'll challenge you on it, and they'll do it from like a, uh, you, you can just tell if they care, they're invested, all that. It's, it's thoughtful. The next wave out from that is, um, like people who follow your followers, they saw it because of a reply, retweets and like that. And they might question some more of it or argue a little bit, but um, like it'll still be thoughtful discourse. And then probably about the third day as something spreads and keeps going, then you'll get to the people who have no idea who you are or who the person is who've engaged with it so that ultimately ended up on their feed. And those people are just like, you're an idiot. This is nonsense. Like, we'll just absolutely tear it apart. And they have no connection whatsoever to you as a creator. And they just saw it in passing by and decided this is the thing that I'm going to be offended about today. And I think that almost all of the, like, take down this content, um, let's get a bunch of people together. It's all that third like that outside tier. Um, and it's very, very rarely someone who's been like, look, I've been reading your newsletter, following your Twitter, listening to your podcast for a few months. And like, you shouldn't have said that, or that was hateful or whatever else. Um, cause those people usually understand, uh, nuance. And that's why when you see someone's entire audience turn against them, then it's like, okay, that was probably really bad. But most of the time the mob is that third layer. All right, last one. You've been generous. Uh, we we are in like a a thirty day uh, hysteria of Chat GPT. Uh, AI is resurfacing. As like twenty twenty three is the year of AI. How will things like Chat GPT? And we don't even have to answer that part. Just how? One of the questions that came in from Twitter is your point of view on how AI impacts creators. Um, you know, as we go forward. Yeah, I think it's really interesting to look at what, what, maybe backing up. There was a wave of startups in like 2018 to 2019 timeframe. Um, they were all like AI, machine learning, all of this. And it was the buzzword that people were slapping on their company to try to raise a bunch more money. That was mostly nonsense. Because um, it wasn't providing them a distinct advantage in the experience they created for consumers. This wave of AI, I, I think, is fundamentally different that what's available now is remarkably better um, and and will change a lot of things. So I think about it from the perspective of a writer, 
I like to think if I'm writing something, could this be written by chat GPT? So if, I, if I'm like 10, 10 ways to do X, right? And you plug it in and like chat GPT is like, oh, like there's a whole thread. Then you're like, all right. So this is going to become like, it was already commoditized and now it's going to become obnoxious. Um, and so as a content creator, what are the things that I can create that AI can't do now, maybe even for five years or more? That's like tell stories from personal experience, connect very separate ideas that you know you wouldn't think go together, like deep research on things, um, all of that. And so I love that. I don't always hit this benchmark because sometimes I'm like, oh, I... I uh, like this is good enough. I want to get it out, but I like to think about that as could this be written by AI? If yes, don't post because it's not interesting or engaging enough. Um, I think that there's a really interesting angle in like augmenting you as a creator with AI. So simple things like, um, getting summaries of YouTube videos. You might not watch the whole thing, but it's like, here's a transcript then summarized by ChatGPT, right? Um, or uh, there's a really cool tool called Lex.page, um, which is by um, uh, Nathan Bastez and uh, Dan Shipper over at Every. And it has this feature, If as you're writing, if you just hit plus, 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 then it suggests using uh, GPT-3 what you should write next. So if you're like, ah, I'm stuck, like give me a conclusion, then it will. And I think that's really interesting of like overcoming writer's block um, or like trying different phrasings of things. So you'll see, uh, you'll see more of that. And then I think the last thing that's going to be interesting is like just who has the best data sets. Because um, ultimately it seems like all of these models are going to be widely available, um, at least with OpenAI, and I think other companies will follow. And so then it's like, okay, who has the best data to train this on? Because um, right now we're just we're all playing with you know content, but uh, like Apple with their Apple Watch, I'm gonna I'm gonna bet on their health AI stuff being pretty dang good. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I would not bet against that because I think they have the absolute best data. Yep. And so we think about it from the ConvertKit side. What data do we have that's useful? Is there a way that we can do this? It's not like just slapping AI it on in the same way um, as someone else might, but but how could we actually do something useful with with the data that we have Yeah. to give you as the creator some insights? And I don't have any solutions there yet, but that's how I think about it. I love it. All right, man. This has been awesome. Thank you very much for today. This was great. Thanks for having me. Jason, as we sat back years ago and were envisioning where Fort was going to go, we realized we needed to bring in a global workforce, a remote workforce that could work with us. And a few of the reasons why were obviously cost, which I think is the first thing that comes to everybody's mind. But then when we talk about shifts, a 24-hour shift, and maybe you can go a little further there, and some of the other benefits that we've realized as we've gone on, and now we sit here today in 2022, at the time we first had this was maybe 10 employees, now we're at 46. Mm -hmm. And as you think about the next chapter and how we're scaling, it's almost inconceivable that we would do it without Relay Human Cloud. 
So can you just talk a little bit more to how the shifts work at Fort and the productivity and some of the other benefits that we've learned about working with a uh, global workforce? It's actually been pretty transformational from how we think about how we're going to not only get stuff done today, but how we're going to get stuff done in the future as we grow. And so when you start going down that path of thinking about you're going to start working with people on the other side of the world, right? There's a lot of questions that come up. How are we going to do it? How are we going to train them? How are we going to uh, manage them? Who's managing them? All those things come up. What we found with Relay Human Cloud was that all those thoughts had already been taken care of and that we could focus on what type of talent is there that can join our team? Does it fit our need? And once we saw that that all that thought and energy had already been put into the operational part of managing and running a team and the thing that we focus on here locally, then it was just a matter of finding the talent. And what I think that Relo Human Cloud has done really well is find a lot of great talent. And, you know, uh, these are people that are highly educated, that uh, can provide a ton of value to a company like ours that otherwise we can't find here. And obviously it's at a, a high uh, or a extreme cost savings compared to what we could find here. So what we started looking for was how could we supplement what we currently do with the team overseas? And it started off for us from an accounting perspective. We, we have a lot of these things that are repetitive, task-driven, that just never end. And we know that, knew that our team was taking on a lot of work during the day, which was limiting our ability to take on new properties. And so we could either, we have a choice. We can hire another accountant or another staff accountant or promote somebody and bring that person on. But we're really just trying to solve, at first, a repetitive task. So when we reached out to Relay Human Cloud, we discovered that not only could we solve that problem, we could get a very qualified person that could not only do that, help support on a lot of other things. And so it, very quickly, it turned into we're trying to solve some repetitive tasks to uh, bringing on more and more team members that were actually helping us grow our accounting department without having to bring on a lot of people here. And so that that just continued to grow. So since then, we've brought on additional assistance, but it started with accounting. The benefit of having a team working globally is that you get the benefit of around the clock and it never ends. And so because we have a, a team here working on things, obviously the time runs out during the day, but there's things that are going to, they're going to come into work tomorrow and they're going to have to start doing that again. One of those things, is, and a good example is cash reconciliations of every bank account. At Fort Capital, we have 50 bank accounts and there's cash reconciliations that have to happen every day. Well, that was something that locally a team had to come into work and start working on every day. Well, that just means there's other things they can't start working on. What happened uh, immediately with our team at uh, Relay Human Cloud was that overnight they were processing all those. They were doing all that accounting work on the back end so that when our team showed up in the morning, they could start on more important tasks that were happening happening locally directly related to the property. Mm. And that that allowed us to uh, create efficiencies. And so that's just one benefit. You, we can go through a, a, an entire list of things that we have discovered that overnight can be done to help increase the efficiency of the accounting team. That, that extends beyond the accounting team. It also extends to the property management team processing invoices. So... Uh, Fort Capital, we have millions of square feet of industrial space uh, across the country. And with that, you have a lot of invoicing that's happening at all times. You, you could name a million things, whether it's paying bills, contractors, 
tenants, whatever it is, there's a, a million invoices being, and that can all be processed in India overnight so that when our team comes in, they're not spending their day processing invoices, which yep. allows us to get to more uh, proactive accounting measures so that we're using our accounting team to actually push the company forward, not uh, keep up with what's coming at us. Right. right. And so we found a ton of efficiencies um, by using or by having the 24 hour workday. So following that up, it was also important to us because that could have been done anywhere, but we wanted it happening under one roof with people that we knew that we worked with daily that were part of our team. And so as you think about these people that are halfway across the globe, it still doesn't seem like they're, it seems like they're in the next room over. Right. And, and that, that's a good point. And I think the, what, what's important to understand there is that this group of individuals that are working in India are working directly for our team. They are a part of our team. They're in our systems. Um, they communicate with our team every day. They are not just an extension of our team. They are a part of our team. And so it is much, much different than if you go hire a third party service out there in the world that you're asking to process invoices, who you're having to send uh, critical or uh, important data to that is or might be sensitive, right? Um, information. We actually have all that internal and this team is a part of that internal team. And so it, it's a it's a much different way to look at outsourcing than if you're just outsourcing it even here locally in America. There's a risk there that you're uh, sending your data to somewhere else. This is all happening internally. Whether you're a small business, medium-sized business, large business, and you're looking to expand your team and build a global workforce, go to RelayHumanCloud.com, use the promo code THEFORTPOD, that's THEFORTPOD, and they have been generous enough to offer $500 off for every employee that you hire per year. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Fort Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions.